Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Jen Proper. Jen is Managing Director, Wealth Strategies at Pitcairn. As a leader in the family office group, Jen serves as a strategic wealth advisor, providing innovative planning services to achieve excellent client outcomes and deliver a superior client experience. Her responsibilities encompass all aspects of wealth planning, including trust and estate administration, fiduciary advice, and administration and wealth advice. She works directly with clients to proactively identify and address current and future needs. Thanks so much for joining us, Jen. Thank you for having me, David. The subject of today's episode is Whitney Houston, a beloved singer and actress nicknamed The Voice. She is one of the best-selling artists of all time, with over 200 million in sales worldwide. Uh, Houston has influenced many singers in popular music and is known for her powerful, soulful vocals and vocal improvisation skills. She's the only artist to have had seven consecutive number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100, from Saving All My Love to You in 1985 to Where Do Broken Hearts Go in 1988. Tragically, in February of 2012, Houston was found dead at the Beverly Hilton, submerged in the bathtub. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office reported that Houston's death was caused by drowning and the effects of atherosclerotic heart disease and cocaine use. The manner of death, however, was listed as an accident. When Houston died, her estate, worth an estimated $20 million, was left to her only child, Bobby Christina Brown, whom she shared with ex-husband, R&B bad boy Bobby Brown. Houston's will was originally drafted in 1993, one year after she married Bobby. Her mother, gospel singer Sissy Houston, was the original executor, but she stepped aside, allowing Marion Pat Houston, Whitney's singer-in-law, sister-in-law and manager, to assume the role. The will was revised again in the year 2000 removing her ex-husband and naming Bobby Christina as the sole beneficiary of the money. Houston's will mandated three age-based distributions. So at the time of Houston's death, Bobby Christina was 18 years old. Instead of getting control over her mother's entire estate at that age, she received 10%, which was roughly $2 million, while the rest was put into a trust fund until she turned 21. Then, per Houston's will, Bobby Christina would get another sixth of the estate when she turned 25, and then the rest of the balance at age 30. Unfortunately, Bobby Christina never made it to her 25th birthday, as she was found unconscious in a bathtub in January 2015 in a truly chilling bit of tragic symmetry. After being rushed to a nearby hospital, Brown was put into a medically induced coma. She died six months later in hospice care at the age of 22. Bobby Christina's boyfriend, Nick Gordon, at first claimed to be her husband, meaning he would receive all the remaining money in her estate. But the two were not actually married. In fact, later was deemed in a civil trial that drug intoxication contributed to Brown's death, and Gordon was found legally liable, although no, no criminal charges were filed. 
As part of that ruling, Gordon was offered to pay $36 million to his deceased girlfriend's estate. However, he himself then died from a heroin overdose in 2020. As stated in Houston's will, if Bobby Christina died bearing no children and unmarried before the age of 30, the estate would revert to her mother, gospel singer Sissy Houston, and her two brothers, Gary and Michael. Pat Houston became the executor of the estate upon Sissy's request. None of Whitney Houston's money would go to Bobby Brown or to Nick Gordon unless stipulated in Bobby Christina's own will, and it is still not known if she's drafted such a document before she died. Being only 21, it's pretty unlikely. Houston's estate provides an interesting case study in both the utilities and potential pitfalls of trusts, as well as a fairly contained example of just how quickly even a relatively simple, I leave everything to one person type estate plan can get complicated. Jen, let's start with the very basics. Whitney Houston had both a will and a trust. What's the difference between those two documents? And do clients need both? Yeah, so that is um, definitely the foundational documents when we're thinking about estate planning, David. Um, I think most people are familiar with the term will. Um, Either they have their own will or perhaps a family member passed away and they were the beneficiary of a will. A will is the foundational document, most basic estate planning document that um, we do suggest. Um, Many times in order for a lot of reasons, um, we suggest a plan where you have a will or over will that pours into what we call a revocable trust. Um, The two documents really work side by side together with respect to your estate and can provide um, a lot more uh, flexibility and asset protection than just a basic will can. So on the show, in several episodes, we've talked about the probate process and uh, sort of the lengths that people will go to to avoid it. Am I talking a little bit just again about what that is and sort of why it's advantageous for clients to try to minimize their exposure to it as much as possible? Sure. So the probate process is um, a court proceeding whereby if you have just a standalone will, your will needs to be taken through the probate process. It varies um, depending on where you resided upon your passing. So each state and each county within each state varies widely on what the probate process looks like, how long it will take, and really the cost as well. So if you have just a simple will, as opposed to the structure that I previously mentioned, will with a revocable trust, you will need to go through probate. The process can be complicated depending on how many assets you have. It is not a private proceeding. It's it's subject to public disclosures. And so um, one of the reasons people don't like the probate process, of, apart from the, the fact that it, it can be costly, um, is that it is a public proceeding. So whatever your provisions were in your will, um, it becomes discoverable by anyone anyone who looks at the, the will proceedings. Yeah. And that's why we know so much about Whitney Houston's estate here, because she had a will that went to probate and all the details were easily publicly discoverable by various media outlets. Um, now, whether or not media outlets are going to care to discover your your clients' uh, details is up in the air, but creditors can, you know, friends can, just it's anyone can is kind of the point, even if there's no sort of, you're not going to have TMZ in there necessarily. Exactly. And so it's obviously something that most people want to avoid, even if you're not a famous celebrity like Whitney Houston. So now we said that trusts help you keep things private, but Whitney Houston did have a trust. So why does the order matter here in terms of keeping things private through probate? 
Yeah. So her, the way her document worked was the trusts were not established until she passed away. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little bit different than having a will combined with a revocable trust. She had a, a, a simple will in that document. There were trusts that were that were created upon her passing for her daughter, as you previously mentioned, as opposed to having the will revocable trust structure where the will really just names um, the executor of your estate and then dictates that all of your um, assets from your estate are poured, we call poured into a revocable trust. And then that document is what would have um, remained private and would have dictated how it, it, it was all settled upon Whitney's passing. She did not have a revocable trust. So in you know, Whitney's this sort of pour over trust that her will set up that we now know so much about, we, we know that she had these um, sort of age provisions where she didn't want to give everything. I think this is a fairly common fact pattern, right? Where if people don't want to give their children too much too fast, especially in this case, Bobby Christina was only 18 when Whitney died. She couldn't have known that, but she had these protections in her will in place, which is a good bit of foresight on her part, um, where she would only receive this $10 million at first, $10 million at twenty. One ten million to twenty five, and then the rest of the age. Are those provisions common? And sort of, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of, of those kind of age provisions in a in a trust? Yes, the short answer is they are very common. Um, I think the intention, and especially looking at the provisions in Whitney's document, was she was probably thinking, you know, eighteen feels very young. She shouldn't have access to all of my assets upon eighteen, but thirty feels like maybe she's older, and therefore she could, um, you know, ha- have more guidance and and more uh, maturity regarding these assets. But really, when we look at a document for clients, we're not really thinking about age-based distributions. We would rather see a client have a document in place where the provisions are subject to discretionary distributions so that their beneficiaries can have access to the income and principal of the trust. But there's no mandated set point in time where the child beneficiary receives these assets. Um, there's a couple of reasons behind that. Really, one, um, especially with Whitney Houston's estate, you know, she was making a comeback right before she passed away. Her estate was valued around $20 million or so when she passed away. It was very likely that her estate would grow from $20 million to some higher future value. Um, so all of that protection and all of that asset growth, really, we would rather see that remain in trust. Uh, for the lifetime of her beneficiaries, as opposed to having some mandated age-based distribution um, where it's passed to the beneficiary. At that point, it's part of their, in this case, Bobby Christina's assets, um, no longer protected by, you know, by the trust from third-party creditors. Yeah. And that's one of the interesting, I guess, aspects of the sort of pour-over trust that Whitney Houston used, right? Whether it's a an advantage or a disadvantage, I think, depends on anyone's given circumstance. But the idea that she doesn't necessarily know how much she's giving Bobby Christina, right? She's just kind of saying, whatever I got, she gets. Exactly. Whereas with a trust that's made beforehand, she could have specified at certain ages, she gets X this year, X that year, X, you know, throughout. So that it's a little bit more of a, you know, even so even if she had that sort of windfall that you were talking about that she was expecting. Um, she still would have been able to sort of give Bobby Christina roughly the same amount of money that she clearly had planned on giving her without having to worry about her being this like deluge of, of wealth that she wouldn't be able to handle. Exactly. Instead of having a mandated distribution based on Bobby Christina's age, instead there would have been a trustee appointed to say um, Bobby Christina needs X amount of dollars for 
you know, let's say starting a business or building a home, et cetera, we're going to distribute that out for that purpose. Um, not just a random dollar amount at a certain age, which we don't like to see in our documents. Now, I feel like so these age-based clauses, distribution clauses are, are just sort of one of, of several you know, common types of um, sort of incentive sort of clauses in trust. Do you mind talking about some of the other ones that you come across most commonly? Um, we definitely have seen other incentive-based um, distributions. And again, we try to steer our clients away from those. That's actually one of the things when I see if we have a newer client or we have a client that we haven't looked at their documents perhaps in a few years, if we see any incentive-based um, distributions like age or um, sometimes it, it could be um, you know, building a house, that type of thing, we generally don't like to see the age-based ones. But if there is an incentive such as starting a new business or building a first home, that's okay. You know, That can be within the trustee's discretion as well and uh, provides a little bit more flexibility with respect to the distributions from a trust. Yeah. And these sorts of things, they can be very attractive to clients a lot of the time is probably why you come across them so much. Um, right. Because you know, wealthy clients are sort of going to naturally a lot of the time have been, especially first generation wealthy clients, are used to being like the business in control of everything. Yeah, the buck stops with me. And it's hard for them, you know, even if you've got them to the point, the very difficult point of them contemplating, preparing for their own death, which is no easy task to get them to still give up afterwards once they realize that, oh, I can put all of these prerequisites in and I can really try to mold my child, you know, into this person who I want them to be, um, which sounds when it's put like that to be like, oh, you're parenting, you're continuing to parent, right? But in reality, it's a, a thing that we refer to as dead hand control sort of in the estate planning industry. Uh, Jen, do you mind sort of talking about the dangers of dead hand control and, and sort of how it can sort of interfere with things? Sure. So, you know, there's always the fine line between, you know, a, a well-crafted estate plan and perhaps um, too much control from the grave or dead hand, as you as you might call it. Um, you know, the purpose of having these trusts in place, there's always a, there's a few reasons. Um, and a lot of times our clients will say to us, well, I, I don't want to have too many parameters around this trust because I don't want my child to feel like I don't trust them. Uh, which is kind of ironic since it's called a trust. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, the purpose of the trust, um, one of the main purposes is to place a wrapper, if you will, an asset protected wrapper around these you know, assets so that the assets remain in trust, but there's, there are ways for the beneficiary to take distributions, whether that's, you know, some type of incentive-based um, distribution, and like I said, a building a first home, starting a business, et cetera. The, there, there are some of those parameters, but it is outside of our client's estate. It's, it's obviously established the revocable trust becomes irrevocable upon their passing. And at that point, there's obviously no, no additional changes that can be made. So, I think it's important for the intent of the um, testator grantor to to make themselves clear during their lifetime so that there's not a lot of room for doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's only so many things you can put into these trust documents with respect to intent. Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of thing gives uh, it faces the advisor and, and the, the drafting attorney with a bit of a, a catch-22, a bit of a dilemma, right? Because obviously your client is the, per- is the decedent, right? The person who's drafting these documents. So you want to fill out you know, their wishes, follow their wishes. But in the same vein, you're hoping that your client is going to be the family and that you're going to be the steward of whatever they're passing down through the, through the child and beyond. So you sort of have to 
catch this balance between, oh, yes, I'm going to do what my cl- all of my client's wishes. And, well, the family has best interest to what my client wishes in, in certain degrees may not be best for the long-term prospects of, of this wealth. So I have to sort of temper my client and sort of, even though I maybe I don't officially represent them, sort of attempt to advocate for the rest of the family a little bit. Absolutely. I do think some of our best um, and sometimes our our most difficult conversations are around that topic where we have a client come in and they might have some preconceived notion of how they want their estate to pass, whether that's how they received wealth or a friend or neighbor or another family member received wealth. So they kind of have this in their head as far as their own documents. And I think it's so important to have those conversations with our clients before we put pen to paper before anything gets typed, drafted, et cetera. Um, it's really important to understand, you know, what their values are, what their intention is, how they want that to pass to their children. And, you know, communication is important, not just, you know, advisor to client, but then, you know, client to family members. And those are, in my experience, the best drafted documents for our families. So a term you've used a couple of times uh, in this conversation already is asset protection. Um, that's that's a very common sort of most estate planners, but I think uh, most financial advisors and other professions, it's a little less of an everyday term. Um, so, you know, they usually deal with sort of asset accumulation, decumulation, these sorts of things, but protection, maybe not so much. Do, so do you mind sort of expanding on just the idea of asset protection and why it's sort of specifically important? Sure. So you're right. I do say asset protection, not just a lot today, but I feel like my everyday conversations with our clients. And again, going back to what we said earlier with, you know, clients sometimes come to us and say, you know, we want these age-based distributions like we saw with Whitney Houston's estate because we don't want them to have to wait forever. We don't want them to feel like they didn't, we didn't trust them um, and want to hold on to this money. And one of the first things we say is, well, Look at it, looking at it a different way, a trust is really an asset protective structure, meaning that the assets that are put into a trust that's well drafted, drafted appropriately, are protected from third party creditors. Mm-hmm. And I'll say to our client, and you might be thinking, as most people do, oh, like, you know, if my child gets into a car accident and someone sues them. And for sure, that is a third party creditor. But, you know, the most common third party creditors are divorcing spouses who make a claim against these assets. And so here you have your, you know, your, the the assets that you put into this trust, they might be multi-generational trusts. Um, The last thing you want is for a child to have, you know, become, be divorced in the middle of a a divorce proceeding and have the, the divorcing spouse try to make a claim on these assets. And so, Again, if it's well-drafted with the right type of language in these trusts, which attorneys are familiar with, they are, the assets held by the trust are protected from those third-party divorcing spouses. Yeah, and at a certain level of wealth, um, clients are sort of beyond being worried about losing their money in the market or such, and the, the biggest threat to the wealth becomes sort of the passage of time and these sorts of the passing on process. Definitely. A lot of it can be spread out and lost. And the control of a trust, right, is its own level of asset protection. You mentioned uh, the divorcing spouses being the most common. You know, in that situation, that's, that's one of the advantages of a trust, right? Where, especially if you're dealing, you know, you have a child who has a spouse that you're not crazy about. That's sort of a tale as old as time. Um, and then there's a grandchild involved and you want you know, a minor grandchild, especially. You want some, you give some money to that minor grandchild and you will, but you can't d- give it to them directly, right? Because it'll go under the control of their parents because they're a minor. Exactly. Um, so now you have this spouse who you don't like 
all of a sudden getting this money from you. Whereas with a trust, you can kind of, you know, push it past that level and, and not have to, you know, hold it in trust for them until they're not a minor anymore or until certain, you know, they graduate college, certain things like that, where you have the control over, you know, and are protecting those assets by sort of just opening a different tube, I guess, to, uh, to, to the intended beneficiary. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that our clients come to us with um, a lot is um, the beginning of a relationship, right? So they have a child who recently was engaged, you know, they're planning the wedding and they say to themselves, oh my goodness, do we need to think about a prenup? Um, Maybe it's a conversation they've never had before. I think prenups sometimes um, can be a difficult, awkward, uncomfortable conversation between, you know, clients and their children and their soon-to-be spouses. And so one of the things that we've talked about with a lot of our client families is, well, you've done this great planning. Most of your assets are in these, again, asset protected trusts, not um, subject to divorcing spouses, third party creditors, because they were well drafted. And so really, we're only looking at kind of the minority of assets here. And maybe it might not even be necessary to have a prenup. And the clients are always so thankful and grateful to kind of have that conversation. They're grateful that the, the wealth, the bulk of their wealth, generational wealth in some cases is protected by these trusts and not um, subject to any sort of divorcing spouse predator claim. So it definitely goes hand in hand with these conversations as, as children get older, marry, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And just to make it clear, I think uh, you know, a lot of times when people hear the term asset protection, it sounds like a little shady to them. It's, it's not quite as shady as like, you know, um, like tax avoidance, which is also perfectly but it sort of it brings to mind this idea of I'm hiding money. Um, that is not what's happening here. And all of this is perfectly legal. You're not hiding money. There is nothing untoward um, going on when you use trust to protect your assets properly in this manner. That's exactly right. Nothing shady. <laughs> just, just has to be, you know, because I think people's mind, that's the first place they go where it's like, oh, I'm protecting you from creditors. I'm hiding. <laughs> exactly. So we mentioned the ability of uh, trust to sort of open various tubes, you know, alternative to uh, for moving money around to, you know, outside the probate process and sort of, you know, just sort of skip people to, to get things directly to certain beneficiaries that under other circumstances you couldn't. Um, how far is too far with that when you're sort of looking into the future or, you know, when you're overcomplicating things? Is, is there a certain point you'd get to where it's like, okay, I have all this control with this trust, but, you know, I, I maybe am making this way more complicated than it has to be? That's a great question. I feel like that is something that we do encounter from time to time, especially when we're looking at multi-generational dynasty style trusts, right? You're trying to plan for children and grandchildren and more remote descendants that you'll never meet um, Mm -hmm. because your intention is for this um, trust to continue to grow through the generations, which is a wonderful intention and certainly something that we see with a lot of our client families. Um, but you don't want to overly complicate it. I, I think some of the things we put in place, we try to make these trusts as flexible as possible. I feel like with, you know, with modern trust law, I'll call it, um, irrevocable trusts have become a little more flexible. There's a little more give room than there used to be. Um, you know, some states allow what we call decanting, which means you can essentially take one trust and take those assets, put it into a new trust with a little bit different uh, provisions. What you can change in the new trust is obviously um, subject to state law and, and is restricted, but you can make a few changes. Uh, we try to think about um, the trustee selection. We haven't really talked about that a lot here today, but 
you know, when I was first starting out in practice, um, an attorney who was uh, much more senior to me said, everyone looks at these trusts and we have the, some of them are hundreds of pages long, but the most important section you'll ever, you'll ever look at is a trustee selection because these are the people that you're appointing to be in charge of all of the decisions on behalf of the trust, right? So it's important not just to think about who you want for the initial person in that um, position of trustee, but also future trustees. Again, as these trusts you know, age and go from generation to generation, obviously the initial trustee, if that person was an individual, will no longer you know, be alive to, to be in charge of the trust. So who, who do you want that person to be? What is the method for successorship? Um, that can sometimes get over, overly cumbersome to your, to your initial question. Um, it needs to be thought out, um, but certainly well-drafted for flexibility. I mean, trustee selection is, is a great topic, so let's let's get on it now that you brought it up, right? Um, the It's a difficult thing to do. It's, it sounds super easy. It's just name somebody. Yeah. Um, but you have this document that is ultimately at its core a family document, right? So you want someone who knows the family. However, as you mentioned, often this family document is 300 pages long and in pure legalese. So even though Uncle Bob is maybe your most trustworthy family member, what, what's his capacity to actually wrangle this document? Right. Um, so it is, you know, this, this is a place where a trusted advisor can really come in and, and sort of straighten things out. Absolutely. And we have these conversations, obviously, with every one of our client families. It is a very personal decision. Um, some of our client families really want an individual in that position of trustee because they feel that an individual Maybe it's a trusted advisor, or it could be an attorney the family has worked with for many years and knows and trusts or an accountant or some other family advisor. Um, they feel like an individual will really understand the intent of the person who created the trust, will understand the family's needs and wants, et cetera, when it comes to distributions. And they like that personal element of, of trustee, um, you know, trusteeship. Um, other client families say to us, listen, we have a lot of family dynamics going on in our family. This person doesn't always talk to that person. Uh, you know, this, this person likes the, tr- the attorney, but the other person doesn't like the attorney. We really need someone in power, you know, in the position of trustee that is um, a third party, completely independent. And in that case, you're looking at more of a corporate trustee, whether that is for example, Pitt Karen, we serve as trustee for many of our client families or some other institution. Um, that is also common. And then sometimes there's a hybrid, right? You can have um, name a trustee that is um, your family attorney, but you also want to have the beneficiaries have the capacity to, to serve as co-trustee of their own trust shares, um, which we do encourage. We think that that's a great way to have that stewardship of wealth and fully understand how the trust works, how the investments work, distributions, really, really immerse yourself in it. So a lot of different paths to take depending on the family's intentions. Yes. And, and to be clear, the trustee, this is a fiduciary position. So yes. uh, anyone who you sort of name it, they make sure they know what they're getting into. Absolutely. Uh, and also just to bring things full circle, um, don't put too many restrictions in your trust that make the trustee's job completely impossible to do. Um, you know, oftentimes we'll see uh you know, sort of maybe restrictions on selling certain stock or whatever that will prevent the trustee from actually acting in the best interest of the client by the letter of the law, you know, under like modern portfolio theory and those sorts of things. So it's very possible to sort of plan your trustee into a bit of a weird corner 
um, and, and put him sort of a, a cockamamie jeopardy in a way. Yeah, again, you know, it's, as I said before, that it is some of the most important language in any trust document are the trustee provisions, including successorship. We had a trust that was several decades old and named a corporate trustee as the trustee and no provisions for any successorship after that corporate trustee. And it was a bank that is no longer in existence. So then what do you do, right? So the flexibility, the successorship is really important with with respect to those provisions. Well, Jen, we're running out of time. Thanks so much for for helping us take a, a look at what is really a very complicated topic. And we have very much um, just scratched the surface of it. We're sort of not even getting into the various trust protectors and all the very fancy elements of, of trust that, that we could jump into. Absolutely. And we love the fancy elements. And thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. And just sort of in parting, um, you know, if you could sort of sum everything up, you know, the advantages of trust planning into one sort of statement, what would be, what would be your main point in terms of the advantages of trust planning for clients? So I would say when it comes to trust planning, don't look at them as something to be put off or wait on. I think it's an important part of your overall planning, financial planning um, and estate planning. It's something to, do, to, to be done on a regular basis if there's any life events that happen, marriage, divorce, death, et cetera. It's always a good time to pull that back out, look at it with your advisor and constantly be um, stewarding that so that you, you make sure when you do pass away that your beneficiaries can enjoy your legacy and, and not have to worry about the, the smaller details. Well, that's all the time that we have. I'd like to thank our guest, Jan Prober, for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me, David. And for all the listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.